When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This episode features discussions of sexuality, the AIDS panic, and how the fear of AIDS was used to demonize the gay community. Listener discretion is advised, as this history may be upsetting for some listeners. We advise extra caution for children under 13. In the early 1980s, the United States had a public health crisis. Thousands of young people were dropping dead, and yet the federal government didn't respond. By 1982, nearly 1,000 people in the U.S. had died from AIDS, and President Ronald Reagan still hadn't made a public statement. His press secretary, Larry Speaks, wasn't interested in delving into the issue. But journalist Lester Kinsolving was. At a press briefing, Kinsolving asked, quote, Does the president have any reaction to the announcement by the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta that AIDS is now an epidemic in over 600 cases? He referred to the disease by its more commonly known name, the gay plague. The press laughed. Consolving persisted. It's a pretty serious thing. One in every three people that get this have died. And I wonder if the president was aware of this. To which the press secretary replied, I don't have it. Do you? As Consolving pushed on, he continued to be met with jokes and non-answers. All around him, the press pool laughed at the deadly epidemic the nation was facing. The question is, was this simply an act of negligence, or did the government have deeper reasons for ignoring the AIDS crisis? Welcome to Conspiracy Theories on the ParCast Network. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. Today, we're talking about the AIDS epidemic. This story is rooted in sociology as much as it is in the hard sciences. AIDS primarily affected populations the rest of the United States felt disassociated with or biased against, which led to broad neglect and government inaction. 
inaction so extreme that to many, it looked more like ill intention. Today, we'll be covering the official story of the AIDS epidemic, what it is, where it came from, how it spread, and how the government and media reacted to this tragic illness. If you want to listen to previous episodes, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Over the past 40 years, our understanding of the AIDS epidemic has been muddied by a social and political climate that blamed the sick. At the time, the disease was dismissed and referred to as the gay plague rather than addressed as the public health crisis that it was. The conversation about AIDS is absolutely filled to the brim with false claims, public disinterest, widespread fear, and of course, conspiracy theories that may or may not have merit. However, to get to the bottom of the conspiracy theories, you have to understand the disease on a scientific and cultural level. This week, we'll start with the basics, the ins and outs of HIV, AIDS, and the political climate that existed in the 1980s. Next week, we'll break down whether that same political climate led only to damaging mistakes or whether it also actively sought to promote HIV. Let's start with HIV, human immunodeficiency virus. When HIV first hit, it wasn't called that. It was a disease that had no name and was often mistaken for other illnesses. Many early patients were diagnosed with a cancer called Kaposi's sarcoma, or were told they had a strange case of pneumonia. Our understanding of HIV stems from the research of Dr. Robert Gallo in the U.S. and Dr. Luc Montagnier in France. Both independently worked out that HIV is a retrovirus spread through bodily fluids. Retroviruses use RNA as their genetic material, which allows the virus to infect and modify the genome of a host cell. You can think of RNA as a messenger and DNA as the message. To continue the metaphor, HIV shoots the messenger and delivers its own message. HIV moves through the body to infect CD4 T cells, which then unknowingly replicate the HIV virus before being killed. All that science makes for some pretty bad news. Put simply, CD4 T cells are a crucial part of our immune system, and HIV uses these cells to replicate, then kill them. CD4 T cells recognize an incoming threat to the immune system and deploy a response team. Without these cells, young, previously healthy people can die from simple cases of pneumonia. This is one of the reasons HIV was so mysterious. You don't technically die from it. It weakens your immune system until you die from something else. Which gives further context to Dr. Matilda Krim's 2005 assertion that the AIDS crisis was a one-of-a-kind epidemic. This epidemic, unlike others who kill mostly the very young or the very old, this one kills people in their most productive years. Previously healthy young people were dying from diseases that typically kill the elderly or children. 
because their immune systems were completely depleted. So if this disease was targeting so many young people, why didn't it get more attention sooner? Why was the spread not a bigger deal? From a scientific angle, the answer is simple. It's a disease that spread quietly and slowly. By the time it was a full-blown epidemic, thousands of people had already died and more were sick. HIV can go undiagnosed for years. In fact, in 2015, there were more than 1.1 million people in the U.S. with HIV. However, one in seven don't even realize they have it. When the HIV virus is first contracted, a person may feel like they have the flu. As the virus works its way into a person's cells, it triggers an immune response from our good old friends, the T-cell. Our body responds just as it does when we have a cold, fever, fatigue, swollen lymph nodes. Then the symptoms stop, just like the flu eventually does. But unlike a normal virus, the HIV virus is still there. The patients just don't feel sick anymore because their immune systems developed antibodies to suppress the HIV. They're not cured by any means, but they're managing to block the disease and stay healthy. For now. For decades, even. This is why it was so difficult for scientists to get a grasp on how the disease worked and why it was so difficult to stop its spread. So decades later, the patient gets sick again. Why? Because HIV is extremely sloppy at replicating itself. This means that every now and again, a mistake strain, slightly different from the strain the patient's body has learned to manage, breaks through and makes the patient sick again, depleting further T-cells. What was once around 1,000 or more T-cells per cubic millimeter of blood is now under 200, a dramatic change in our body's ability to fight off disease. And this is a mark of a shift in the individual's disease. This is where HIV becomes AIDS otherwise known as Acquired Immune Deficiency Syndrome. AIDS is the last and most relentless stage of HIV, marked by an extremely impaired immune system and a heightened likelihood of contracting opportunistic infections. To put it simply, this is the point where simple diseases can now be killers due to a weakened immune system. Without medical intervention, HIV will progress to AIDS within five to 10 years, However, the time it takes for HIV to progress into AIDS varies greatly from patient to patient, depending on treatment and other factors. In 2018, not everyone reaches the AIDS stage of HIV due to antiretroviral therapy that can dramatically change the lives of people living with HIV, keeping them healthy and minimizing their ability to spread the disease. However, these drugs weren't available until the mid-1990s. In the 80s, finding out you had AIDS was basically a death sentence. So we figured out what HIV and AIDS are, but where did the virus come from? And why did it affect certain communities disproportionately? Why did so many people believe it was a gay plague? Well, it was predominantly affecting gay individuals, but not because they were being divinely judged for their sins. The correlation is due to other reasons. We'll look into those reasons right after this. Now, back to the story. So, we understand how HIV develops in the human body, but discussing where it came from and how it spread is just as important. 
Long before HIV was denounced as a gay disease, it belonged to a different community, a community that wasn't human at all. That is the red-capped mangabey and the greater spot-nosed monkey in Africa. These monkeys naturally suffer from a disease researchers call SIV, simian immunodeficiency virus. It looks a lot like HIV, not just in name, but in composition. Chimpanzees eat monkeys and were in turn infected with a hybrid version of the virus. As any high school biology teacher will tell you, chimpanzee DNA is particularly close to humans. It eventually became clear to researchers that HIV must have been passed to humans from SIV-infected chimps from Cameroon. Dr. Beatrice Hahn explained to the New York Times in 2001, quote, People eat chimpanzees. We expect that transmissions occurred through the exposure to blood through hunting or preparation of meat, end quote. This theory is known as the cut-hunter hypothesis. You may wonder how cooked chimpanzee meat might still be able to carry the SIV virus into the human body. Well, it doesn't have to. All you need is a bit of blood from the chimpanzee to make its way into the butcher's mouth or an open wound in order for SIV to make the leap into the human species. From there, the butcher becomes infected and in turn can unknowingly pass the disease on to other humans until it morphs into HIV as we know it now. The retrovirus's ability to mutate is integral to why HIV is so hard to fight. But this allows us to follow its spread throughout history. While many people believe that HIV was tied to a certain lifestyle and originated from a single patient zero, that couldn't be further from the truth. It's clear that SIV leaped to humans through multiple different butchers, if you will, evidenced by the fact that there are numerous strains of HIV. Some went to Asia, others went to Europe. The differences in strains make it relatively easy to understand how the disease migrated, even if we don't know who in particular moved it. The HIV we are addressing today is the main variation referred to as the M strain. This strain first appeared in humans around 1908. And while the disease first popped up in Africa, it didn't stay there. And this brings us to Zaire, or the Democratic Republic of Congo, a Central African country with a history of migration in and out of the region. What we now call the Democratic Republic of Congo was colonized by the Belgians in 1908, when HIV was just beginning to emerge in humans. After the Congo began to gain independence from Belgian colonial forces, a large Haitian community moved in. But when the Belgian Congo became Zaire, it prompted the Haitians to return to Haiti, and with them went HIV. In Haiti, HIV spread even more quickly than it had before. One likely contributor to the hastened spread of disease was a plasma center called Hemo-Caribbean. They were discovered reusing blood tubing when collecting plasma donations against hygiene protocols. The company opened in 1971, and the same year, HIV arrived in New York. Hemo-Caribbean exported 1,600 gallons of plasma to the United States every month. As we mentioned, HIV is passed through bodily fluids, including blood. This immediately endangered hemophiliacs and other patients in need of blood transfusions. Around the same time, in the 1970s, 
Haiti was a popular sex tourism destination for gay men. Prostitution is legal there, but there was, and still is, a particularly elevated rate of HIV in the population. Though it can't be said who first carried the disease to North America, or whether it was a tourist or a blood donation, we can be sure that HIV arrived in New York City by around 1971. It wasn't until 1976 that it appeared in San Francisco, and that's where the epidemic really took off. In the 70s, San Francisco was in the midst of a sexual revolution. It was a community built on free love and sex, a place where gay people could outwardly be gay, congregate in bars free of discrimination, and parade down the street with pride. There was nowhere else like it. Even New York wasn't the same. The New York gay community and their leadership were more focused on assimilation, on fitting in, gaining their rights and respect, and not being loud. This was a stark difference from San Francisco's Castro district. They were less driven to achieve the approval of the nation, and much more focused on finally celebrating the fact that they had somewhere to go and feel free. This climate marks the before of the AIDS epidemic. There was a long way to go yet, but there was finally openness, celebration, and companionship in San Francisco's gay community. But this also happened to be the perfect place for a sexually transmitted disease to spread, especially given that sexual education wasn't what it is today. Using protection is only obvious to us now because of what we learned from the AIDS epidemic. There's another reason AIDS is always tied back to California. Whenever there is a discussion of the spread of AIDS, one name will always come up. Gaetan Dugas, a.k.a. Patient Zero. One thing was undeniable. Gaetan Dugas was hot. He was widely considered one of the more desirable members of the 1970s San Francisco gay scene. What's more, Gaetan was well-traveled, given his job as a flight attendant. He could go anywhere in the world, but he always returned to San Francisco. He loved the city, and it loved him. By his own account, he had hundreds of sexual partners a year and estimated having had around 2,500 sexual partners in his short life of 31 years. Gaetan would always come back to the Castro district, even in 1982, when purple lesions began appearing on his skin and his doctor told him he was terminally ill with a form of cancer called Kaposi's sarcoma. His doctors had let him know that what he was facing was likely terminal, what else was there to do but enjoy the place he loved? Gaetan had contracted what would become HIV-AIDS just as the disease began to truly take foot in the gay community. He came to be marked as patient zero, or as the New York Post put it in one of their headlines, the man who gave us AIDS. He had hundreds of partners, so doctors saw his name popping up over and over again as they tracked the disease. What's more, a flight attendant is a natural profession for introducing a new disease to the United States. And he was gay. Before 1985, it was believed the disease solely affected gay people. He was an easy target for the doctors and the media looking to place blame for the epidemic. All of a sudden, members of the gay community saw their friends, partners, and heroes dropping dead. 
Imagine your healthy friends, 20 and 30 year olds, falling terminally ill with no explanation. The once thriving gay community transformed into one filled with sickness, fear, and confusion. They received little public sympathy. Many Americans didn't pay attention to what was happening at all. More bigoted critics thought this is what gay Americans deserved. In a way, Gaetan came to represent the idea that the gay community was to blame for this disease, that they had, quote, earned it through their own, quote, sexual deviance. In most epidemics, people quickly try and solve the problem, but with AIDS, the focus was on looking for blame. It's not surprising that scientists ended up pointing fingers at Gaetan. The people wanted someone to blame. As soon as science suggested there might be a patient zero, the media honed in on this, exaggerating the story for the public's ears. When scientists took a sample of Gaetan's blood, HIV was certainly present. However, we now know the strain was the same as the one already present in men in New York, a strain that was present before Gaetan even began his career as a flight attendant. The patient zero theory was completely unfounded. Looking back, scientists never really even suggested Gaetan was patient zero. If anything, it was just a simple slip up. Likely, the story found its roots in a 1984 study that examined 40 gay men with Kaposi sarcoma or other HIV AIDS related symptoms and mapped out their sexual partners. As it turns out, Eight of the 40 men had had sex with a nameless flight attendant. Four of them lived in New York and four in California. But our nameless flight attendant was nameless. So what did they call him? Patient O, standing for out of California. Now, I'm sure you don't need a pencil and paper to work out what the letter O looks like. The entire patient zero phenomenon was due to nothing more than a misread letter O and immense social bias. Since there wasn't really an understanding of what HIV AIDS was, it was easy for the media spin to spread misconceptions. That is, when they chose to speak up, for the most part, the media barely said anything about the disease. the American public turned a blind eye because a gay disease was not a problem for the nation at large. Most Americans didn't even know any openly gay people. It was easy to ignore an epidemic that, for all most people knew, was only affecting a small segment of the population. The government certainly wasn't saying anything to clarify what was going on either. And as we know, Reagan's press secretary and the press were treating the gay community and their problems as a joke. All the general public really knew was that HIV AIDS usually infected gay men and that it was scary. While we like to think that our social behavior reacts to our scientific findings, there's been a lot of moments in history that beg to differ. Often, it's our science that follows our social climate and perception of an issue's importance. If U.S. society at large didn't care about the gay community, neither would the U.S. government, which meant there would be no funding for a response from the scientific community. Which is kind of crazy. AIDS was beginning to make itself known as a terminal and spreadable disease affecting young people in the strongest, healthiest years of their lives. In 1981, there were 159 new cases of the disease reported. 
By 1982, it grew to 771. Just three years after that, it had exploded to 15,527 cases with 12,529 deaths, and it was all swept under the rug. In 1989, Dr. Jonathan Mann, director of the World Health Organization's Global Program on AIDS, explained that the disease was still growing exponentially and warned of inaction. At the end of the 1980s, the world's vulnerability to AIDS remains and is increasing. Overall, the global epidemic is gaining momentum. Major barriers to more effective action still exist and complacency about AIDS is spreading worldwide. The World Health Organization believes that the world's struggle with AIDS during the 1990s will be much more difficult than it has been during the decade of the 1980s. The World Health Organization predicts that by the year 2000, six million people may have developed AIDS, a tenfold increase over today. Luckily, by the 1990s, antiretroviral therapies were invented, which slowed down the progression of HIV, steering us away from the version of history Dr. Jonathan Mann describes. However, his claims speak to the severe apathy towards funding HIV-AIDS research and sexual education in the U.S. Think about an Ebola outbreak hitting the United States. It would be on the front page of every paper. Science would rush to address the problem. Now imagine it arrived first in Alaska, a small subset of America that feels far away. And the only attention it got was a few paragraphs buried in the middle of a paper, basically conveying the sentiment that it only happened to people in Alaska. That's what the beginning of the AIDS epidemic was like. It's clear that, due to bias, there was inaction in addressing this disease. But does that inaction rise to the point of conspiracy? To look at that, we have to dig further right after this. Now, back to the story. By the early 80s, amid the misinformation about the source of AIDS, doctors were onto the fact that it was a viral disease spread through the exchanging of bodily fluids. The first cases were reported in a growing network of gay men, but around 1982, there was a sudden outbreak among hemophiliacs. The San Francisco gay community was a civic-minded group of people. Blood banks knew they'd get donations if they brought vans to gay events. In fact, gay men gave between 5 to 7% of all the donated blood in San Francisco around this time, which may have further spread the disease. The hemo-Caribbean blood bank mistake, which we talked about earlier, likely also contributed to this spread. And then, almost simultaneously, doctors realized 20 Haitian immigrants had fallen ill, despite none of them being gay or hemophiliacs. And HIV was also affecting heroin users, who often shared needles. The CDC began referring to what we know as HIV as the 4-H disease. It stood for homosexuals, hemophiliacs, heroin users, and Haitians. Others called it GRID, gay-related immune deficiency. These derogatory labels are a classic example of why it took such a long time for HIV and AIDS to receive proper attention from the government. As sad as this sounds, 
if the sick parties were mostly gay men, drug addicts, and black immigrants, what was the government's motive to solve the problem? It's not as if the people with money and political power were getting sick. However, it eventually became clear that nearly all bodily fluid could spread the disease. Women and straight couples also began to fall sick. Babies contracted the disease from breast milk of their sick mothers. The only bodily fluid that seemingly could not spread the disease was saliva, which makes sense as it's full of antibodies and antimicrobial proteins. On October 2, 1985, American actor Rock Hudson died of AIDS. He was a movie star in Hollywood's golden age, a leading man who worked with the likes of Elizabeth Taylor and James Dean. He had an all-American jawline and a celebrity status that created a bond with the American public, who all felt they knew him. He was their friend, and he got sick. And just like that, the United States decided AIDS was a problem for everyone, not just gay people. Rock Hudson gave the disease a face that America could sympathize with. By 1985, cases of AIDS had been reported in each region of the world, and the United States was finally going to address the public health problem they had on their hands. Congress allocated $70 million for AIDS research, and Ronald Reagan mentioned AIDS publicly for the first time. For the first time, long after thousands of young, healthy people had died. But at least the country was finally at the point where AIDS had a face average Americans would sympathize with. Along with Rock Hudson, a suburban teen named Ryan White became a poster boy for the idea that so-called good, innocent Americans could get AIDS. Ryan was a hemophiliac, and he'd contracted the disease from infected blood transfusions when he was just 13 years old. Appearing before the President's Commission on AIDS, Ryan shared his experience with prejudice. I became the target of Ryan White jokes. Lies about me biting people, spitting on vegetables and cookies in grocery stores, and urinating on bathroom walls. Some restaurants threw away my dishes. I was labeled a troublemaker. My mom and unfit mother, and I was not welcome anywhere. But poster boys sharing their experiences didn't mean prejudice was over just that the country had awakened to the public health disaster they were facing. Prejudice, in fact, was still a part of the disease. HIV awareness ads warned of limiting sexual interaction. Nobody was really sure on the specifics of HIV, so those with the disease were still pariahs. The propensity to blame victims for bringing it upon themselves instead of considering HIV-AIDS a problem of public health continued. It was fear-mongering at its finest. In one instance, a Florida family was ousted from their church when three young brothers all contracted HIV from blood transfusions. These type of incidents led President Ronald Reagan to finally start speaking out on behalf of HIV and AIDS victims. The pastor asked the entire family not to come back to their church. Ladies and gentlemen, this is old-fashioned fear, and it has no place in the home of the brave. But just because Reagan had finally decided to speak up about AIDS didn't mean the U.S. government had moved past their biases. While private organizations aimed to make sex safe again through educational campaigns that touted the importance of condoms, Congress was doing the opposite. In 1987, 
President Reagan signed a piece of legislation that banned using federal money in preventative AIDS campaigns. To quote the legislation, it promoted or encouraged, directly or indirectly, homosexual activities. Congress was willing to let people die from ignorance about safe sex, just to avoid inadvertently encouraging being gay. Instead of promoting sexual education, government campaigns focused on normalizing AIDS and making sure everyone knew they were at risk. This had its pros and cons. It dulled some of the fear and bias toward gay people, but it also diverted money and attention away from the communities who needed it most. In fact, although the government now had a $600 million budget towards fighting and preventing AIDS, much of that budget was spent educating college students and heterosexual women who were much less at risk. Even as the government began to work on saving American lives, it was evident that bias still ruled the handling of this epidemic. But how far does the bias go? We can clearly see that HIV-AIDS was not given the proper scientific and public awareness attention it deserved. Dismissed by the media as a gay problem, or a black problem, or a drug user's problem, it was ignored by the press and the government until it was too late to contain the everyone problem. And once media coverage and campaigns did start to kick in, AIDS awareness campaigns were still full of fear-mongering that led to individuals being outcast from their communities instead of supported. As for the government, they didn't want to appear as though they were aligning themselves with the gay community. Stepping in to fight AIDS was bad politics. But to what extent is this neglect a side effect of prejudice? And to what extent were these malicious targeted acts? At what point does inactivity begin to look like a targeted genocide? If HIV was a targeted act, were any of its objectives achieved? And in what ways do we continue to be affected today by past mistakes and biases? When it comes to HIV AIDS, there's a lot to dig through. We've given you a basic understanding of what it is and how it spread, and in theory, why it spread. But there are a few other explanations for how AIDS became an epidemic. Next week, we'll look into the conspiracy theories behind the AIDS epidemic, starting with a surprising theory that points to those at the top of the gay community's hierarchy. Well, now that's a twist. A twist, but not without a strain of thinking we are unfamiliar with. Just as standing with AIDS patients could have been bad PR for the government, it could have also been considered unsavory for gay leaders, particularly those in New York who were trying to make a place for healthy gay people in America. So, conspiracy theory number one. Gay community leaders suppressed media coverage and government response to HIV-AIDS in an attempt to keep their name clean. A gay plague would only worsen American homophobia. Then there's conspiracy theory number two. HIV-AIDS did not come about because of government complacency, but because of an overt effort by the government to spread the disease. This is a two-parter when it comes to government motive. Some people believe that the government was targeting gay and African-American populations specifically, while others believe HIV was an attempt to cull overpopulation in general. And then there's conspiracy theory number three, which brings us into 2018. 
While we now have drugs to prevent the spread of HIV and to slow the progress of HIV, there still is no actual cure for AIDS. Many people have noticed that high-profile or wealthy HIV-positive individuals, like Magic Johnson, seem to be doing surprisingly fine. Modern medicine is effective at keeping HIV patients healthy. But is it that good? Or does our government have a cure that they're not sharing with us? And if they're not sharing it with us, why not? Who are they targeting? We'll look at all these questions and try to get to the truth next week. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back next Wednesday with part two of our look into the AIDS epidemic. You can find more episodes of Conspiracy Theories, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next week. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Conspiracy Theories is written by Andrew M. Henderson and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. 